Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. I'm Israel Wayne. And I'm Brooke. Well, we're going to try to follow up on a conversation that we had recently where we talked about literature. And we had some folks that contacted us and asked us to try to be a little bit more specific about perhaps some recommended reading lists and some titles that might be useful for uh, families with varying ages of children. And so we wanted to come back to this and talk about it and see what we could come up with in terms of some recommended books. Now, I think we've talked about this probably numerous times. Uh, probably should get them to be a paid sponsor of the podcast or something. But we really enjoy the books, uh, missionary biographies uh, that are published by YWAM Publishing. Um, they have a series of uh, history heroes and then a group of missionary biographies. Uh, we really enjoy those. I understand that's not necessarily classic literature, but when uh, we think of reading material for our children, that's something that's a, a big go-to for us. Um, In fact, we had, um, since we last did that podcast, we had one of our sons finish all 48 books. He was so happy to have reached a goal. Yeah, it's kind of funny. He actually wanted to read um, the Kingdom series by Chuck Black. We'll throw in a pitch for fellow homeschooler Chuck. Uh, he speaks at homeschool conferences and such, and he has a kind of fantasy series that he has created. And um, our son, his older brothers, had read those books, and he wanted to read them too. And I told him, um, yeah, you can read that set as soon as you finish the YWAM set. So over the last year, he plowed through, I think it was like 42 books, which is uh, probably more than I ever read in uh, my school years. But uh, anyway, those are great books. And... Um, but when we think of literature, we usually think of kind of classic literature, either like great books of the Western world or, you know, the books of the last two centuries. Uh, or in some cases, um, some people think of the recommended reading lists that schools put out. Those, of course, are things that we uh, probably would not recommend. Most of the titles that are recommended reading for school children today uh, from the school system, they're, they're definitely not worth reading most of them. One of the things that I really enjoyed as when I was growing up about literature was my family would read aloud quite a bit during the evenings. And so we plowed through quite a few books, and sadly, I probably don't even remember half of them. But I remember um, at a certain point, probably around late middle school or high school for my brother and I, we started reading some um, heavier books like Great Expectations by Charles Dickens or Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, we read some things like Ben-Hur. Um, and that was really helpful to be able to be able to have that time to talk through the concepts, talk through that point in history. And I'll always appreciate the fact that when we came to a book such as Anne Frank's Diary, that my mom read it aloud, but she was able to kind of filter out some of the unnecessary things. And so when I had a friend recommend to me reading um, a book by Ralph Moody that was called 
Little Bridges, right? Little Bridges. There we go. Or, or might have been called Farming with Father. Anyhow, there's a whole series of those books. Wonderful books, a lot of good character building stories, a lot of good lines. But it has a few words in there and a few even just paragraphs that I thought, this is not helpful for my children. This is not necessary. And so in a in an effort to pass on that good story, I remembered my mom's approach and was able to utilize that. Not that we can keep our children from everything in the world, but as young children, while we're training them and trying to teach them what is right, what is good, and filling their minds with that, uh, it's not necessary to dump um, anything that has foul words in it, foul language, uh, foul storyline, just to expose them to the literature of the world. My mother used to say that's why God made permanent markers. <laughs> yes, that's true. I've I've marked up quite a few books. So one of the things that we recommend, of course, is uh, reading aloud as a family. Um, I remember one of the first books that my mother read aloud to my sister and I when I was probably about four and she was about six was the Little House on the Prairie books. Mm. We went through the whole thing and certain parts of it I remember the uh, long winter I think we read during the winter and that was very apropos when you look out and you see snow and it's cold and you read about their winter experience uh, it's very relevant to you but I think the only book of that series at that time that I really connected with and enjoyed was far the uh, farmer boy uh, story I thought the other ones were too girlish <laughs> and uh, I thought that one was just so dull all it talked about was eating a well, whole book <laughs> so yeah, about well, eating. Probably part of why I liked it. Uh, but that was one that I remember fondly, you know, hearing those stories when I was young. And uh, there are just a lot of great books that make good read-alouds. Um, one of the things that we've noticed is that some of the older books uh, are great, and they've remained as classics, if you will, because they, they really contain a lot of uh, important truth and great moral lessons, and they're well-told, they're well-written. Uh, so they've endured because they're good. But not everything that's called a classic mm-hmm. is good. Right. And that's something that you need to be mindful as uh, a parent, that not everything that you see on a recommended reading list, uh, even in homeschool curriculum, is necessarily something that you should uh, just give to your children unfiltered and say, here, take this and go read it. Right. Well, there's a lot of a lot of teaching that needs to happen with Soaking our children in what's good, what's the truth, what does the scripture say? And then as they develop and are older and mature, we need to be able to gently expose them to some of this literature of the world, the great storylines. But like we alluded to in our last podcast about literature, those great minds, the atheistic minds, the agnostic minds that have produced much of this great classic literature of our world um, are very good at persuading our children. That's something we want to be very intentional not to throw our children out into the, the cold with, but be able to help guide them through that process of being able to um, not just not just take in literature without thinking, without processing, without analyzing. Yeah, like we were reading about these transcendentalists in New England who had started a commune and were basically trying to create literature that would introduce a transcendental worldview against a Christian worldview. And they're very well-known, very popular writers that were all friends and basically neighbors, Mm -hmm. uh, but people like... 
Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Right. Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, the Alcotts, like Louisa, Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women and Little Men, um, Henry David Thoreau, uh, his uh, mentor, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. And, and a lot of them had a very anti-Christian worldview. And it's important for you sometimes to know the history of these authors and to know what their belief system and their worldview was. Uh, like Mark Twain, for example. Uh, Mark Twain was uh, very godless and antagonistic to the Christian faith, actually. And so some parents give their children books like Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn, and they just say, hey, here's a great book, go read this. And sometimes they don't even remember the storyline. But like in Huckleberry Finn, for example, there's a scene in the book that uh, is kind of troubling because Mark Twain creates this situational ethics scenario where there is this slave named Jim who has escaped from his master, and Huck is friends with Jim, and he knows about him escaping, and he is torn because he believes that he's supposed to turn him in to like his that's master. That's the moral, godly thing to do, and moral, he, right thing. You know, he says in the book that basically he uh, learned in Sunday school that you know you turn in a slave, and if you don't do that, you go to hell. And so he's wrestling with this dilemma. And I was wondering, Brooke, if you could read that so that um, we could just kind of get a feel for this very difficult ethical dilemma or situational ethics scenario that Mark Twain introduces in Huckleberry Finn. Here it goes. And got to thinking over our trip down the river. And I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms. And we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harm me against him, but only the other kind. I'd see him standing by, watch on top of his, instead of me calling on him, so I could go on sleeping and see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog, and when I come to him again in the swamp, up there where the feud was, and such like times, and would always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could think of for me, and how good he always was. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling him, the men we had smallpox aboard, and he was so grateful and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world, and the only one he's got now. Then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and says to myself, All right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. It was an awful thought and awful words, but they was said, and I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. I shoved the whole thing out of my head and said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line, being brung up to it, and the other weren't. And for a starter, I would go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again, and if I could think up anything worse, I would do that too, because as long as I was in, and in for good, I might as well go the whole hog. So here's a scenario that Twain introduces that's a false dichotomy. Um, obviously, there's not this moral dilemma for uh, for Huck of turning his slave friend or go to hell, but the child, in a way, is forced to have to grapple with this in his own mind. And for 
Uh, many of them, they're going to be compelled by this emotional pull, the emotional argument that says friendship is more important than your eternal soul. Right. And and so this false dilemma, this false dichotomy that Twain puts together is, is kind of masterfully written because it does. It tugs on the emotions. Yeah. And those are the kinds of things that children really need to be guided through rather than just handing a book like that to a child and saying, oh, hey, here's a great classic, Huck Finn. Yeah, great adventure story. You need to realize these authors had a worldview and they're trying to force their worldview on other people. So you were contrasting that earlier in our discussion, just the two of us privately, with another book, a great classic book called Robinson Crusoe. And I wonder if you could share a passage from there. There's a scene in the book where Robinson Crusoe has started to write down a journal. And this is July 4th. And I just want you to listen to the Christian influence in this classic it says this, In the morning I took the Bible, and beginning at the New Testament, I began seriously to read it, and imposed upon myself to read a while every morning and every night, not tying myself to the number of chapters, but long as my thoughts should engage me. It was not long after I set seriously to this work till I found my heart more deeply and sincerely affected with the wickedness of my past life. The impression of my dream revived, and the words, All these things have not brought thee to repentance, ran seriously through my thoughts. I was earnestly begging of God to give me repentance when it happened, providentially, that very day, that reading the scripture, I came to these words, quote, He is exalted, a prince and a savior, to give repentance and to give remission, end quote. I threw down the book, and with my heart, as well as my hands, lifted up to heaven in a kind of ecstasy of joy, I cried out aloud, Jesus, thou son of David, Jesus, thou exalted prince and savior, give me repentance. This was the first time I could say, in the true sense of these words, that I prayed in all my life. For now, I prayed with a sense of my condition, and a true scripture view of hope, founded on the encouragement of the word of God. And from this time, I may say, I began to hope that God would hear me. I mean, that is such a powerful representation of true conversion. And there are some of these books that have those kinds of stories in the unabridged versions. I think it's important that when you go out and get a book like Swiss Family Robinson or Robinson Crusoe or some of those books, you get the original unabridged versions because if you get the contemporary dumbed-down version, they pull a lot of that stuff out. And there's a deliberate attempt to um, make them sort of religiously neutral for contemporary audiences. Uh, but some of those books had a lot of scriptural basis. And uh, one that we really enjoy that's blatantly Christian, but that's kind of a classic that our family has gone back to um, and we've enjoyed in various forms is Pilgrim's Progress. I've really valued the Pilgrim's Progress narrative. Um, I have kind of just chosen 
a little bit randomly that I would like to make this year a year. Our family focuses on Pilgrim's Progress. And part of how we're doing that is we're bringing in some of those character, um, what do they call them, the cartoon types of videos that give a very simple portrayal for young children or Dangerous Journey, the book that is an abridged version, again, for children but has pictures. And then we had a nice coffee table um, version that we gave to the family this year. That we got through uh, Masterbooks. Right. It's an, a lovely edition. And it's just kind of an, it's just a special thing because way back when our oldest was about five, six years old, I took that poor boy, if you can imagine, through the unabridged version that we read aloud together. Um, and, you know, I, I must have taken months. I don't even remember how long it took. That <laughs> that little child sat with me through pages and pages and pages and pages as we read. But it is so rich. And here's why I love it. This book gives uh, an overview of what the Christian life is about. And it shows in very, um, you know, story-like terms the dangers, the temptations, the the road bumps ahead that might might take a Christian down, might take a pilgrim off his path, and it builds in them a sense of why spiritual maturity is needed. One of the things that the reformers tried to talk about was the necessity for passing on the values of the true, the good, and the beautiful. And we find these things reflected in Philippians 4.8. And these transcendent values are things that represent who God is. God is true and good and beautiful. And sometimes these things are reflected in great literature. In classical education, there are three tiers of learning. There's the grammar stage, the logic stage, and the rhetoric stage. And my view is that you don't want to introduce myth and fable and falsehood too early to the child. Uh, obviously, in apologetics, you're having to take error and learn how to reason through that and how to defend truth against error. So the goal is not to protect our children from all error and make sure that they never see or hear something that's not true or something that's not good or not beautiful. Um, but that we don't introduce a lot of that uh, at an age where they don't know how to decipher it. And so they need to know what's true before being introduced to what is false. And a lot of um, classical education, just picking on that, I guess, introduces things like mythology. And a lot of young children uh, are led through stories that they may have a hard time discerning um, how that fits into the, the world. Um, they hear, you know, stories from the scripture. They hear stories from mythology. Um, they can just begin to believe, that, hey, this is all just made up stories. Uh, I think it's important to um, walk your children through these stages. And if you're introducing books that are systematically opposed to the Christian worldview, so if that's books like Grapes of Wrath or books like... Um, the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne or, you know, other books like Plato's Republic or the Communist Manifesto. I mean, those are things that at high school level you may be walking your children through, but you don't want to be handing some of these books to your sixth grader and saying, here, enjoy. Um, you know, not that you'd be giving some of those books to your sixth grader. 
<laughs> yeah, some of them are a little more uh, advanced, but uh, but like Huckleberry Finn, you know, a lot of people might give that to a sixth grader, and uh, there are times to introduce those books. One one book that we've really appreciated, or curriculum that we've appreciated, is we've appreciated Kevin Swanson's uh, book. Um, Worldviews and Conflict. Yes, published by Master Books. And he has a section in there that he deals with literature and talks about Mark Twain, Nathaniel Hawthorne, William Shakespeare, uh, a lot of um, literature authors, and um, discusses their works from a Christian worldview at a high school level. And so it's been a really good critique or analysis for uh, our oldest who's been going through that. I think the enjoyment issue is one that really is um, probably the most tempting for homeschooling parents to just say, oh, go go read this book, because it can be done. The child's usually fairly into an entertaining story, at least. And so it's so easy to just kind of stop being intentional about that. And I think this is an area we need to be very intentional about what books are um, coming through. And then the ones that, you know, have some issues that need, that bring in some, um, something that contrasts starkly with God's Word, we need that as a conversation starter. And I think conversations are the best way to do that. I know some books um, from a Christian perspective will help guide a student through how to ask good questions about it or or put in a question that the student answers with a writing assignment. That can be very, very helpful. I think conversations are a very good place to start, though, because that is the most relational for the the parents and the child. And then also, as a parent, you're able to quickly see, is, what is my child getting out of this book? What are they missing? And that type of thing. One of the things that my family did, and I really appreciated when I was growing up, was about probably 18, 19 at the time, our church had a monthly book discussion. And it was called Counterpoint because the books did not always line up with the scriptures. We had, say, Machiavelli's Prince um, book one of the months, and then we had Pascal's, I believe it's called Pencil or Thoughts, book another month. And so it's just a, a huge contrast between each one. One of the books was The Da Vinci Code, and my dad, in just a humorous attempt to uh, kind of go incognito, wore a trench coat and a hat and sunglasses and put the book in a paper bag, and it was just kind of a... Uh, a really interesting time for our family to be able to go once a month and see through the pastor who led that conversation, see how books compare to the scripture and to be able to say, do they line up or not? And I felt like that was a really good way to evaluate books and, and just having it, not only my family, but my church family, part of that discussion. So as Brooke was saying, finding Christian-focused literature study guides can be really helpful so that if your student is doing writing assignments, they have guides that are written from a Christian perspective that walks them through those books. And, you know, for her, for a parent here, I'm saying conversations are the most important part of this. I will say, though, you know, a lot of times I'm foggy-brained and I'm like, I don't remember exactly what was said in the book. I read it 20 years ago. So study guides from a Christian perspective are essential. They're so helpful. But you also have to know a little bit about the worldview of the person who wrote the study guides, because not everything says Christian is Christian and worldview. 
Um, there's one that I was looking at recently, and it was from a Christian author. It was Christian curriculum for Christian students. But the writer who was developing the questions really didn't guide the student very much. Hmm. It was sort of like, so this person brutally murdered his mother. How do you feel about that? Hmm. More of a self-exploratory kind of question. Yeah, so almost every question was just asking the junior high student how they felt about what happened, and they weren't really guiding them. So um, the thing about uh, parenting is that you have to be a parent. And I know sometimes we just want to hand our child a book and say, like, go read this and get out of my hair, and we don't want to be engaged and involved, but the fact is we need to be engaged and involved. That's part of our process. I talk a lot about literature and actually have a whole chapter on this topic in my book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? And we would encourage you, if you haven't done so, to pick up a copy of that book at our website, our website is familyrenewal.org, and look for Education, Does God Have an Opinion? We also want to encourage you to sign up on our email list so that we can keep in touch with you. We send out one email update a month, and we also will alert you whenever we're doing an event in your area. You can sign up at familyrenewal.org forward slash subscribe. We'd also like to connect with you on social media. You can join us on facebook.com forward slash Israel Wayne author or forward slash family renewal. I am on Twitter at Israel Wayne, and we certainly want you to subscribe to the Family Renewal podcast and share this with your friends. So thank you so much for listening, and we will look forward to uh, talking with you again next time on the Family Renewal podcast. Happy reading. Bye-bye.